0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. I'm really excited today to spend some time with the blues. We'll explore the racialized, gendered, sexualized, and overarchingly monetized tension of that music and its relationship to normative socials and economics of whiteness. We'll do that through the lens of one of the legendary creators and original influencers of music that became known as rock and roll. That's someone who is popularly, although not popularly enough, known as Big Mama Thornton, not famous enough for penning songs that white artists made a killing from, like Elvis's version of Hound Dog and Janis Joplin's version of Ball and Chain, we'll spend the hour discussing a biography that begins by rejecting even the name that she was marketed with The book is called Why Willie Mae Thornton Matters, and my guest is the author of that book, Lene Denise, who is a writer, a scholar, and also a DJ. Lene, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Very happy to have you here. I'm super excited about this book. I had a very good time reading it. Let's let's just go straight to the first chapter. Your first chapter is called Mothering the Blues, and I want to start there through, I guess, a conversation about motherhood and Blackness and specifically how you approach Willie Mae Thornton's more popular or famous name.
1: Mm-hmm. Um yeah, that's a great place to start. Thank you. Uh yeah, mothering and blackness and and kind of thinking about the blues with that lens or certainly um and maybe, you know, walking through the concept um as part of the introduction to who Willie Mae Thornton was um, was important to me. Yes, because she has the word and holds the word mother in her name, um, but also because mothering is a really interesting kind of concept to think about that's full of tension and questions when, um, you know, placed next to the word Blackness. Um, And so I took inspiration from the work that Alexis Pauline Gumbs um, you know, has done with her work around revolutionary mothering and and her sort of editing this book and thinking about the ways that we have to expand our understanding of, of what it means to mother and to be mother. But, you know, I made a conscious decision to refer to Willie Mae Thornton as Willie Mae Thornton, as opposed to Big Mama Thornton, because I wanted to kind of focus on her interior life world and not so much the persona and mainly because that persona was one that was sort of bound up with you know the music industry and its gimmicks, um, also the sort of limitations of the American imagination um, and the ways in which black women are positioned as mothers of the nation um, and you know where their sort of intellectual and creative um, labor is kind of reduced to mothering. But also, you know, ultimately the name Big Mama Thornton was given to her in the late 1950s at the Apollo Theater um, by a white manager at the time by the name of Frank Schiffman. And I couldn't be and I didn't feel fully comfortable referring to her as Big Mama Thornton throughout the book because um, I wasn't sure of, of what his intentions were. And I don't want to strip her of agency because she oftentimes referred to herself as Big Mama Thornton. But I think that I wanted to learn more about who she was beyond how she was positioned um, in the music industry.
0: Well, you mentioned one specific time reference in the late 1950s. For folks that are not at all familiar with Willie Mae Thornton, can you put us in a context uh, of of timing and also of space. Um, set the scene for us.
1: Okay. Yeah. You know, and I think that it was interesting to delve into the 1940s through Willie May and her experience as a performer on the vaudeville scene. Um, and then to kind of follow her movement from, um, you know, various cities in the black South where she performed to her arrival and her landing, in fact, in Houston, Texas, where she, you know, made a home for several years. And, and the making of that home included the late 1950s emergence of rock and roll. Um, And so, you know, the Willie Mae Thornton hound dog moment is one that I think overshadows and even robs her of, the, you know, attention that she deserves on her 40 plus, you know, um, years of performing and singing and thinking and creating music and musical styles. But yeah, that 1950s moment is critical because it is the moment in which America defines the birth of rock and roll. And it is the moment where black folks are sort of thinking about sound based on region and migration Um, rural and, you know, blues is changing form as Black folks are moving, you know, certainly not just from the South to the North, but also between, you know, major cities in the South. Um, And so Willie Mae, you know, being born in Alabama and arriving in Texas makes sense for those migration patterns, but what she brought along with her in that 1950s moment was her training as a vaudeville performer in the 1940s. Um, and so you have a dynamic performer who is shaped by you know, folks like um, Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey who were also on the vaudeville scene. So she sort of graduates into this next phase of a kind of urban um, blues that eventually em- emerges as a rhythm and blues. In um, Texas, still a sort of working class, you know, black sound practice um, that begins to shape and sound white American artists. So Willie May records Hound Dog in the 1950s, the early 1950s, and of course Elvis records it um, and becomes, you know, famously known. Um, but it also is the beginning of a kind of interesting trend, right? I don't just want to talk about cultural appropriation, but we're talking about the political economy of Black music and what it means to replace, um, you know, a, a, or to create Black sounds with white faces, right? And, and, and what that's led to. Um, and so that 1950s moment is, is critical for so many reasons and not just a site of injury for Willie Mae. And this kind of story of theft around, you know, Elvis Presley, but also because she is a part of the making of rock and roll. She is a part of the making of rhythm and blues. She is a part of the making of vaudeville culture before that. Um, And so you can sort of trace her footprint based on these, these regional sounds
0: and i'm I'm really excited to try to dive into some of what it means for Willie May and also for black performers over those decades to build a relationship with uh for lack of a better term white audiences and also relationship with uh white appropriation of their music i I do want to step back a little bit first into some more biographical just experience. I mean, Willie May as a young person, I mean, at an age that I would think of as a kid was performing on that vaudeville circuit and being exposed to, um, all kinds of very adult situations. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What did that look like for her? I mean, that starts in Alabama.
1: It starts in Alabama, and it's an incredibly gendered journey. In that she was taken out of school early, shortly following her mother's, um, you know, struggle with her health, and um, she was, you know, sort of forced, based on the condi- you know, the circumstances, to drop out of school and care for her mother. And when her mother eventually passed, she had to do the work to help support, right, her newly widowed father. Um, and it is, you know, um, a really interesting thing to think about who and when and how women travel, especially when we're talking about music. It is interesting and pretty radical that she moves from this place of working as a domestic, which many, many Black women, blues artists did, you know, um, but then also having the guts and the nerve to, you know, um, perform for, audition for. You know, you know, reviews that were coming through the Black South looking for, you know, or looking to expand their reviews. And so, yeah, she gets on the road around 14 years old. And not only is she exposed to some of these, you know, adult <laughs> cultural practices that include drinking and smoking, she actually also becomes pregnant, right? And that is not a moment in her life that I linger on, mainly because they're so little information about that pregnancy outside of the fact that this child was taken by the state. Um, And I find that to be a very important place of of departure to think about the blues, right. Um, And movement and migration. And as I said, who gets to leave and why, who gets to leave home and why, who gets to travel to pursue, you know, their interests and their passions and music and why, and why we so, Willingly associate the blues with like the sort of traveling black male with his you know lone guitar, where Willie May had been on the road, you know, um, starting as a teenager and also stayed on that road until you know 1984.
0: One of the things that was so shocking to me while reading your book is you bring in this pretty powerful narrative around Willie May Thornton and kind of the the mothering. Uh, dialectic thing where she's given this name by a white person of Big Mama Thornton. Meantime, she becomes pregnant as an early vaudeville performer and as a literal biological mother has her child taken away.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that context, I'd like to think of her as Willie Mae Thornton, a Black woman like Fannie Lou Hamer, who was, you know, sterilized um, by the state. I want to think about her as having these kinds of like experiences that many Black Southern women did with violence against their bodies and their, you know, um, decision making around reproductive health, um, their sort of vulnerability, both within the community with threats, you know, made to them by black men, you know, um, but also threats by the state. And so it is interesting to me that big mama, as we know her, you know, um, is indeed a mother. And I have, I'm, I'm super curious about where that child is to this day, you know, and if that child is alive. Um, and so, yeah, I, and, and I, and I want to sit with that and honor what I know must have been a painful experience, and also I'm curious about how she even held that, considering that the child was taken from her while she was a teenager. And so I hear in her voice, in her throat, in her hands the blues, and I understand that it is informed by what it means to be, and you know what it meant to be a black woman, you know, um, born in the 1930s, traveling in the 1940s you know, sort of being part of this massive like chitlin circuit, rhythm and blues, you know, world in the nineteen fifties and constantly dealing with institutionalized violence.
0: And you're listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. I'm Jesse Strauss in conversation with Lene Denise about her book Why Willie Mae Thornton Matters. Linnae, you're just talking about institutional violence and the kind of roles, whether it's misogyny and patriarchy on the road for this very young woman who's, who's dealing with that in your book. You also describe her as queer. Um, sexuality is not something Willie May herself discussed publicly. You describe her as queer specifically in the spirit of Judith Butler. What does that mean? And without hearing from Willie May herself, How can we embrace the impact of queerness in her legacy?
1: I am. It's very important to me that I don't declare her sexuality because she never did. But what I talk about is what is inherently non-normative about her approach to gender um, and to the music industry. And I think that, you know, her decision And her politics of refusal around adhering to these gender norms and how they look on the bodies of women, of blues women in particular, who are known to be, you know, um, dressed in gowns and and headpieces that sort of, you know, accentuate their like, you know, almost like working class royalty. And Willie Mae is like, I'm quite comfortable in overalls. I'm quite comfortable in a cowboy hat. And in fact, yes, my label is trying to figure out how to market me because I am like this tall woman who wears quote unquote men's clothing and I am not comfortable cooperating. And so I sabotage, I show up on stage wearing something different from what the label suggested that I wear, or, you know, I wear those things and then immediately change to my real clothes. And I think there's a queerness in that refusal, right? And and it has nothing to do with who she loved, who she slept with, because that I have no access to. I have access to through photos, through her interviews, through the stories of other people, her absolute sort of like rebellious spirit and her willingness to put her values on the line you know, or to put her success on the line for her values, rather, right? Um, and so there's a queerness in that.
0: Let's move on to talk about the song that she maybe is, is certainly not famous enough for, but it's the song that she wrote that is certainly the most famous from her catalog. That's, that's Hound Dog. We've talked about it a little bit already. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller were two of the original writers of the song, but when Willie Mae puts her touches on it, she doesn't get recognition. Uh, you know, w- whether or not the song was a hit, it would have been problematic. But knowing what happened with the success of that song and, you know, Elvis's fortune and fame, it, it leaves that situation and that history much more upsetting. Can you Can you talk us through the beginnings of that song? I mean, I'm going to go ahead and generously assume that all of our listeners have a reference point to Hound Dog, um, but that most of our listeners don't have a reference point to Willie May as, as a writer of that song.
1: Hmm. I mean, you know, speaking of mothering, I consider um, Angela Davis to be a, 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 a you know, a key um, mother of blues scholarship that I used to figure out how to frame and understand Willie Mays' story. And so in Angela Davis's book, Blue's Legacies and Black Feminism, right? She talks about going to the Smithsonian and listening to the work of, you know, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith and Billie Holiday and noticing an important discrepancy, which is, you know, the failure um, to include their ad-libs in the transcripts, right, of the lyrics. Um, and she is to some degree arguing that that is where, right. Um, black women could assert themselves as individual artists versus artists being written for, um, so many, you know, of the original blues songs that were recorded by those three women who Angela Davis focuses on in the book, um, are, are known to have performed songs written by men, but, to assert themselves, to break through that kind of gendered, you know, power dynamic, those ad-libs matter. And so while Willie Mae did not write the lyrics, um, part of why people loved the song and her version and why it actually was a hit in Black communities was because of how she engaged with the musicians, was because of the improvisational sort of shouts and screams, um, which could, absolutely could and should be considered you know, as part of the writing and her creative and intellectual property. And so, you know, she lost that money. She lost that sort of credibility based on, you know, these sort of technical, you know, and logistical sort of points that were made to prove in the music street, in the music industry, who has the right to royalties, right? Who has the right to publishing, but she maintained for 40 years that she, you know, like, not only contributed to the the creative, you know, production of the song, but that it is her contribution that makes the song what it is.
0: And just put us in context with the timeline now. When did Willie Mae touch that song compared to Elvis?
1: So interestingly enough, she recorded the song um, in early or late 1951. I need to check my dates. Listen, I have some space from that book, so I need to really think about like, these exact dates and years. But what stands out to me and what she also maintained was that she recorded the song and Don Roby, you know, who was president of Peacock Records, a, a label you know, that she was signed to, shelved the album, she shelved the album. Right. And for two years. Um, and that, you know, Elvis releases the song in 1956, but Willie May recorded it in 1952. Right. So it's released in 1954 um, and, you know, circulates the black tra- the black charts, you know, the rhythm and blues charts. And Elvis, a close listener of black music, you know, in Memphis listening to black radio you know, gets word of the song, though he claims that, you know, Willie Mae Thornton's version was not the one that inspired him. But he, you know, he, he performs his version in 1956 and his career takes off, as too does Sun Records, where he was signed. Um, and so you have Sam Phillips, who was also the president of Sun Records, who had a mission, which was to create white faces. To represent Black music, right? So Elvis was, you know, his sort of cash cow, if you will, from the start. And Willie Mae is the blueprint. But again, she recorded it in 52. It was released in 54. Elvis released it, you know, his cover of it in 1956.
0: Well, and that's part of kind of the 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 veil that we see over the music industry in terms of how cultural appropriation works, taking Black music or black arts into mainstream America that then makes money for other people. It's the relationship that Elvis had to that song, you know, may or may not have been a specific relationship to Willie May's version. Right. But Willie May recorded that song four years before, released it two years before, and built energy behind that song and built an environment in which people wanted to hear people play that song.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's important to, you know, understand the fact that the American music industry is one that is sort of built around a kind of sharecropper model, right? Being paid in advance, being housed, Right. And then, you know, tallying up your expenses at the end of whatever a tour and learning that you have to pay this person and that person you're left with so little. Right. But also in that sharecropping model in that plantation model, we are talking about black labor and white wealth. Right. Um, That. So, yeah, it's 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 actually even more sinister than just like cultural appropriation. It is about this structure of stealing that models and mimics the plantation. Right. Or plantation culture. Um, and secondly, it's important that we nuance this story and offer new ways of understanding it. And so part of what I did in the book was invited, you know, Alice Walker's sort of playful but incisive um, reimagining of the story through a fiction work called 1955, which is an interesting year. Right. Because that is the year before Elvis records it. Um, and she renders, you know, Willie Mae Thornton as this woman who has retired, has her own home, has this family, you know, and, and I don't want to give away too much of the book, but this kind of blues fiction, or maybe even, you know, elements of, you know, revenge fantasy that lives in black literature is important because Alice Walker gave me the opportunity to think differently about the 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 hound dog moment right she allows me to encourages me in fact to and teaches me how to think about what Elvis lost in that right because there's so much focus on on his on what he's gained you know you know financially and in terms of like his career but what he lost in not understanding the source of the music right that you know what he lost in also being sort of you know exploit it as an artist (laughs) Um, and it's just, just, that was just like incredibly important, you know, because I am someone who was raised, you know, in the eighties and my primary reference for Elvis was public enemies fight the power, right? Like that, that gave us language to think about Elvis as representing a system Right, that like he is the sort of you know face of again not just cultural appropriation but the structural stealing of black music and black music as a sort of um, you know metaphor to think about slavery and and again black black labor and, and white wealth and so I think it's important that we use this Willie May Elvis Presley moment. Um, to kind of ask more nuanced questions. Like what do we mean by, you know, cultural appropriation? Like what, what at whose cost? What is like, what, what, you know, what are the stakes and who, who are the players involved? What are the patterns? The hound dog is an opportunity.
0: I'm really appreciating the way that you described Elvis's loss mm-hmm. in the way that um, he pursued that. Cause there's a different experience that happens in Janis Joplin's use of a a different Willie May Thornton song, right? Mm-hmm, Where mm-hmm. maybe that maybe that loss is not so present. We're going to get there. I that's a spoiler alert for folks in a few minutes. B- before we get there, I wanted to talk about one more biographical piece she left Alabama to go to Texas. She left Texas to come to California.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I want to talk specifically about her relationship with Johnny Otis. He plays a particular role in her life. And I, I want to share with you because you may not know. I'm particularly interested because Johnny Otis in his later years had a regular show here at KPFA at this radio station that he broadcast from his own home. Can you talk a little bit about how Johnny Otis entered Willie May's life and and kind of the impact that he had, including in how she performed the song hound dog
1: yeah um great question And, and yes i love that background moment that like context of you know johnny otis's californian connection very specifically with kpfa but also with la and watts and so that's great yeah you know johnny otis greek you know born in the bay area um and to greek parents obviously and who were immigrants um and it's just a really interesting thing to think about how their friendship developed over the years. I will say that they met through her experience as an artist for Peacock Records. Um, They were struggling to figure out how to market Willie Mae Thornton, Big Mama Thornton. Um, And so part of what they did was reached out to Johnny Otis to see if he would audition her to take her on the road, right, And, and, and represent the label. And even to produce her. And he agreed to do so. And he also agreed to sign over the masters of whatever they created, which included Hound Dog. Um, And so, yeah, he auditioned her. And along with Marie Adams um, and also little Esther Phillips. um, And, you know, they went on the road as part of a Peacock Record Review. um, and, And while traveling, eventually landed in L.A., where he reached out. Yeah, to Lieber and Stoller to to meet Willie Mae and to help write a song. Um, and they came in and saw her and, according to them, started scribbling lyrics on a napkin, took those lyrics home, returned with the song Hound Dog. Um, I think what's interesting is that Johnny Otis also has a stake in, you know, Hound Dog in terms of his actual legal battle against Stoller and Lieber. Um, to kind of be able to, you know, um, collect royalties from his participation, his technical participation in the production of the song, which includes the arrangement of drums. Um, he also literally produced it in terms of engineering, um, and also was conscious of leaving these racialized sort of references that Lieber and Stoller included, like the use of the word, you know, fried chicken and watermelon, which was, you know, originally part of the lyrics they presented. And, you know, there was chemistry, um, according to Johnny Otis's, you know, biography, as well as the memoir of the the, the you know, Stoller and Lieber. They talk about the chemistry between Johnny Otis and Willie Mae, And she maintains, you know, she she goes on the record to talk about how this is a person who she trusts. This was a lifelong friend. Um, They eventually ended up in Los Angeles together playing around the city. Um, And so Johnny Otis was a key character in her life, someone she trusted. And, you know, of course, it would be... (laughs) really ridiculous for me not to mention his son, right? Suggy Otis and, and the importance of strawberry letter 22. right? So there's an interesting sort of like <clears throat> family history there that is about and a really kind of surprising, you know story where Johnny Otis um, is sort of black passing. Right. Um, and that there were many folks in black communities in California who assumed that he was black because of not just, you know, the fact that he was leading these reviews with all these, you know, black artists and, and making and producing music with black artists, but that also he had an, an investment in community through his political work and calling attention to things like police brutality and sort of covering the, the Watts riots when he was. A writer with his own column for the Los Angeles Sentinel Magazine. So, this is a really complex character, but I sensed a kind of tenderness um, from Willie Mae when she spoke about him. And that means something because she didn't cut her tongue. She was very clear about people she trusted and people who she felt like had her best interests in mind and those who did not. She had special affection for Johnny Otis until the end. And it was also Johnny Otis who sort of helped you know, fundraise for her, her service or the service that, you know, folks were able to to afford. So there's a history there, an important history that is rooted in intimacy and trust and collaboration.
0: I, I, I also see it as such an invitation to think, you know, we're, we're in a conversation about cultural and economic appropriation and how certainly mm-hmm. in Willie May's life, but also in Black music period, the relationship to access to broader American economy is so challenging that in a relationship to someone like Johnny Otis, who is a white man, although as you described, maybe Black passing, that that as a white man, he also approached things differently. Um, and I see it kind of as an invitation to to think about what does it mean to have genuine interactions that is interactive rather than appropriative, and and I think that leads me to finally get to this other person who shows up who is certainly not passing in any way. Janis Joplin, um, who is famous partially for a cover of the song "Ball and Chain," which is a Willie Mae Thornton song. Um, and one done in a way that Willie May had a very different relationship to, right? In the way that Janis Joplin did that.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's another, that's another Bay Area moment. You know? um, she, you know, Willie May um, leaves Texas and travels to the Bay and, and, and makes her home there. And she records for a number of Black-owned um, blues record labels in Oakland. Um, which I also found to be fascinating. That was a great way to kind of learn about, you know, um, this kind of Black West Coast blues scene. And so she recorded for, you know, these smaller Black-owned labels. Of course, signing over her rights to the masters. And so she wrote "Ball and Chain" um, in early nineteen sixty in the early nineteen sixties. Um, and we are talking about, you know, this kind of Bay Area hate Ashbury folk, you know, hippie summer of love, you know, um, moment. And Janis Joplin is performing all over the Bay with her band, the big brother and the holding company. And, you know, they are like Willie may performing locally, different venues in the Bay, um, and in San Francisco. And, and one night, you know, um, after having listened to Willie May for a long time, Janis Joplin sees her perform live and she sees her perform, Ball and Chain Live, and after the show, she approaches Willie Mae and asks her permission directly to sing the song. Not only does Willie Mae say yes, she writes out the lyrics, right? Like she, she writes out the lyrics. And the difference between, you know, the Elvis Hound Dog moment and the Janice Joplin Ball and Chain moment is that from the start, just the idea of permission, seeking permission. Right. Um, and also the fact that this is a song she did write. And one of the things that Janice Joplin did as a part of, you know, um, singing that song and performing that song and covering that song was inviting Willie May to perform the song. And that is not to be seen as like a kind of charity offering. If anything, Janice Joplin was lucky that Willie May said yes But it does speak to a different kind of, or maybe it's a little less extractive. It's a little less exploitive um, because also, you know, Janis Joplin took it a step further and made sure that Willie Mae received publishing credit and royalties for, for, for that song, because, you know, Janis Joplin performs it um, on her own album eventually. And, you know, the, the truth in the story and the difference in energy between Janice Joplin and Ellis Presley can be heard in the way that Willie Mae Thornton introduced both of those songs before she sang them for 30 years, right? She would, you know, introduce Hound Dog by saying something like, ladies and gentlemen, this is my song. I, you, I was the first to sing this song. You heard it from me first, right? Like she, she would always kind of reclaim Like the fact that at the end of the day, whether she wrote it or not, or whether she got credit for her, you know, writing (laughs) um, contribution to the song, she would claim it publicly, which I think was incredibly powerful and a way to kind of, you know, um, shift the narrative. And then, but she would do something interesting with Janis Joplin. She'd say, ladies and gentlemen, I wrote this song made famous by me and Janis Joplin. I don't know how Janis Joplin sings the song, but I know how I sing the song, and I can only sing like myself. So ladies and gentlemen, here's the song Ball and Chain, and she would do this almost every live performance she would have like a story that allowed her to reclaim the song, right? Both songs, rather, Hound Dog and Ball and Chain, but she spoke with a different tone and she acknowledged and she said publicly Janice Joplin's name and she did not say Elvis's name when she performed Hound Dog. And so, you know, I mean, still at the end of the day, you know, even if we're talking about Johnny Otis and, and his sort of noble, you know, contributions to black music and the ways in which he put a number of artists on um, and Janice Joplin and the work she did to give back at the end of the day, this position <laughs> is one that is really, you know, one that reveals a super uncomfortable power dynamic, no matter where your heart is. Right. And so, you know, Willie May at the end of the day was at the mercy of white folks who saw her as human and did the work to kind of get her paid for her labor. But that is, I don't know if I want to celebrate that as much as I want to simply acknowledge that that happened. I don't know if it's a celebration, (laughs) right? Like, um, and because it constantly places Willie May at the mercy of these artists, of these white artists, of these white producers, of these white musicians who have the resources to, quote unquote, help her out. And that help can look like them performing her song, them recording their son, her song instead of her.
0: And that's the voice of Lene Denise in conversation about her book, Why Willie May Thornton Matters. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the the finances here and and this is I guess a broader context, but you know, in a way, your book is about this incredible musician. It's also about the relationship between black musicians and the ways the music industry and its economy is designed from a capitalist business centered orientation in every context, but especially in this one, business centers means it has little to no distance from the roots of our economy where racialized slavery, defined a combined relationship to whiteness and to wealth. How do those legacies play into a relationship specifically to business literacy, financial literacy, and also, right, straight up regular literacy? I guess the question is in a broad way, but also in how Willie May has access to this economic engine that is the music industry.
1: Yeah, has access but is on the margins, right? But I think, yeah, you bring up an important word literacy, financial literacy, and literacy in general. Um, it is incredibly important to think about the ways in which Black folks were punished and killed and tortured for trying to become literate, right? And that what does it mean for generations, right, to be terrorized? Um, in their approach to and, and you know, and their sort of um, desire to, to educate themselves and to become literate. Like, what does it mean that those generations then enter the music scene and the music industry, right? Because there's a lot of judgment around, you know, whether or not people were reading their contracts closely. Of course, this is later on. I'm thinking of artists that, you know, continue to be exploited, you know, through the, like, 70s, 80s in 90s and now, um, even though there's, there are many sort of models that let us know that you need to really be thinking through the loopholes and, and you know and, and trying to figure out how to avoid being exploited. But I just think it's really interesting to think about the sort of white terrorist tactic that you know punished black people for trying to learn how to read and then what it meant to usher those same folks or generations, of those folks, you know, into the music industry. One thing that's interesting to me is the belief that, you know, folks were simply not literate versus people being desperate and signing contracts based on their immediate needs, you know? So for example, Willie Mae is paid $500. She is given a one-time payment of $500 for, you know, for, for Hound Dog. But she signs this contract when she, you know, moves to Texas, is vulnerable, is trying to find her way. Right. Like, what does it mean when you are trying to figure out how to eat and you are presented with this, quote unquote, deal? Um, And so, yeah, it makes me think about literacy. Yes, but also vulnerability when signing the contract and getting involved in the music industry.
0: So. In addition to being a researcher and a writer, you're also a DJ. And while I was reading the book, it seems like you wrote a biography in the way that maybe you would as a DJ. You approach it, you know, as a mixtape. Your chapters are not exactly chronological. They sometimes (laughs) jump around um, significantly, like from a research experience you had in Germany to a discussion of the relationship between blues, jazz and gospel. And you place yourself in the story a lot, um, which makes it for a really engaging read. It also feels like, you know, a broadly cohesive story that you're telling about Willie Mae Thornton, right? Not just what happened, the things that happened in her life, but about the way she approached and experienced it and how the world was moving around her. Can you talk a little bit about how you approached this writing process and what it means to maybe break some rules of biography?
1: I love that. Absolutely breaking the rules of biography. Well, first, you know, to credit the University of Texas Press, it's important to know that this series of Why Music Matters, which includes a number of artists, um, you know, a number of writers who wrote about why, you know, Bushwick Bill matters, why Shanae O'Connor matters, why Mariah Carey, ma- why Mariah Carey matters. Um, and part of the series or the sale, you know, for this series was that the writers include themselves, that there'd be some element of personal narrative, which quite honestly, I pushed back on at first. I'm like, that's not a biography. Like, you know, like I want to, why, why would I focus on myself? I think what's interesting is that there was you know, there were so many connections between us. I'm like, yep, I understand. You know, like um, I was able to kind of think about, for example, I talk about the parallels between Willie Mae Thornton and Roxanne Chante, right? And thinking about how for my generation, I would argue that Roxanne Chante's, you know, um, Roxanne's revenge did a similar thing that Willie Mae's Hound Dog did, which was sort of be a sort of catalyst, almost the spark that starts this whole other musical movement, whether we're talking about hip hop or, you know, what we call American rock and roll, but also that they share being exploited, that they shared having these like men around them, Black and otherwise, making decisions about their career and also taking advantage of them. Right. So that like, you know, understanding Roxanne Chante's you know, struggle in the industry in the 1980s made it easy for me to understand Willie Mays in the 1950s and really throughout her whole career. So that approach was was useful because I felt like I was given permission to, to make these, like, you know, unlikely comparisons. I think, you know, I talk about the movie Friday in the book and what it means for Black folks to have to, like, you know, collect money, what it means to have to, the the emotional labor that comes attached to having to chase your money at the end of a show and and likening that to kind of like, you know, big perm in the movie Friday where like he is having to collect this money that he is old. Right. Um, And the the movie is centered around like what they're going to do to get him this money, but also the emotional world that both, you know, um, going to say Smokey and Ice Cube's character or, you know, their emotional worlds and also Big Big Worm, Big Perm's emotional world and the labor involved. But anyway, those unlikely connections were part of sample culture, right? Like I'm sitting here talking about Willie May and then I'm sampling, you know, a scene from Friday. I am talking about Willie May, but I'm also sampling Alice Walker's fiction. You know, I'm talking about Willie May Thornton, but I'm also sampling you know um you know the black arts movement and their sort of political stance against you know white writers of black music the sampling more so than just the mixtape i would say that my references were aligned with djs who um move from you know dj cultural practices to production practices right where they're not just playing the records and 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 presenting the music. Now they are listening differently and sampling what they need to compose new songs using found objects. Yeah, I know I use the mixtape metaphor, but I think just even in this conversation with you, it is more about my relationship and understanding of sampling and hip hop in particular as a kind of, you know, institution for cultural memory. Like there are many stories inside of hip hop because of sampling culture. And so I use that approach um, and thinking about Willie May for several reasons. A, there was only one biography written about her, and it was written by a German man by the name of Michael Spork who has never been to the Black South, right? Who's never been to America. And I found that to be interesting. It doesn't discredit his research or his book, which I used as a, you know, just a, a, a primary text. But it is also about how... A, challenged, I felt, by the limited information about her, but how how I could find out who she was through other forms of Blackness, through other Black movements, through other Black artists on the liner notes of other artists where she was referenced, right? Like in hearing, you know, Ray Charles talk about her and sampling his voice when he refers to, you know, Elvis as not being king and refers to not Big Mama Thornton, but Willie Mae Thornton as having a sound of her own that that Elvis built from, right? Like there were just all these opportunities for me to pull from black American culture to tell her story, right? And, and sometimes, you know, she was on the margins of those stories. If I wanted to talk about, you know, 1972 and gospel, you know, like, and her album called Saved, which she, you know, released in 1971. I went through Detroit. I went through Mahalia Jackson, right? I went through James Cleveland. I went through Watts. I went through Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace to set up the story of the significance of this gospel album that Willie Mae, you know, creates. So it's just about understanding Willie May through the lens of these like significant events in black America that helped me write this book.
0: Well, and it was written in such a creative way compared to how I've read many other biographies. I really want to thank you for that. It was a really powerful read. I'm in conversation with Lene Denise in conversation about her book, Why Willie Mae Thornton Matters. Lene, unfortunately, we're out of time. I feel like I could continue to go deeper with you for a long time. But thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much. Your questions were wonderful. Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Lene Denise is an academic, an author, and a global practitioner of sound, language, and Black Atlantic thought, who coined the term DJ scholarship, which shifts the role of the DJ from a party purveyor to an archivist and cultural worker. Her research contends with how iterations of sound system culture construct a living archive and refuge for a Black queer diaspora. And her latest book is called Why Willie Mae Thornton Matters.
2: You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive.